Good morning. This morning's scripture is Psalm 109, a Psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate. I'm sorry, I'm would rather read out of my Bible than this version. Um, For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me with evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him and let the accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that, they, that, he, may be, that he may be cut off from the memory of them. Cut off the memory of them from the earth, excuse me. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this reward of my accusers from, let this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May your accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I know it's a little heavy, but it's God's word. And so I think you'll get something rich out of it. I trust you will. I've been praying this week for myself and for you that God has a word for you out of this, right? So let me pray. I'm going to pray that again, and, um, and then we'll get started on this. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Psalm 109. Lord, <laughs> the good news is that every word in the scripture is true, and it's breathed by you, and it's there for our edification to teach us, to build us up, to strengthen us, Lord. Um, and it's there for our good. So, Lord, as we come for this word today, I trust, Father, that you have prepared hearts to receive the word today. And I ask that you would be faithful to your promise that your word never goes out and comes back void. So, God, would you do all that you intend to do today and speak through me at this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in some way or another, it seems to me that the human race, myself included, is fascinated by the idea of curses, right? Now, you might go, huh? Well, let me, let me point out. How many books did you read from some of you older folks that uh, maybe you read Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys when you were growing up? And you remember, they always had some little curse thing tied in there, you know, and a whole bunch of them had that. That was kind of the, the twist. Anything that went wrong, you could go like, oh, it's the curse, you know. Uh, do you like Indiana Jones? Come on now, you know, or the curse of the mummy's tomb that came out in 2006. This stuff is all through, like, the, the entertainment and media we have. We kind of we like it. That's true, right? And what does that curse do? Well, it, it, it promises that, you know, like in the curse of the mummy's tomb, if you go into King Tut's tomb, there's this curse that was laid upon it. And what's going to happen? Well, if you break the seal, if you get into the tomb, all these dreadful things are going to happen to you and your family. And it's going to pursue you across time and wherever you are until you're all destroyed. There it is. Yeah, well, in our passage today, there's something kind of similar going on here. Uh, we, we read about David, about false accusations leveled against David, about the, uh, about the ter I mean, truly terrible curses that he pronounces against those people who spoke the false accusations. And then we get the reasons why David feels... He's justified to be, to be pronouncing these things. And why, in particular, God should be his defender in all of this. So, if you're not familiar with this sort of psalm, it's called an imprecatory psalm. And it typically asks God to vindicate the writer, to judge his enemies, and really bring about their utter destruction and failure in everything that they're trying to do. Um, you don't want to be on the receiving end of it, sort of. You know, that's kind of the idea. So the gist of Psalm 109 really is found in that very idea of the curse. It begins with David laying out his case before God in the first five verses. And then it spends 15 verses applying the curses. And then... 
at the end of that, in 21 through 28, it generally restates David's case for why God should be his defender. And then ends with this praise because God's going to come in and be his defender, right? It's that anchored into that, that God is going to be doing those things. That's the gist of it. But when you read that, when you listen to that just now, my guess is it felt jarring. It felt shocking. It felt brutal. Because it was. I would bet that the way this psalm, this psalm lands on, depending on who you are out there, it lands on you in one of a few different ways. Some of you have stood falsely accused by those you loved or that you had shown kindness and goodness to, and they've turned against you, they've made those false accusations, and you feel exactly like David. Like you would have no, no better thing in your mind than to say the exact same things and like, dude, I wish I was that good at saying those sorts of things. And let me say, I just really understand. I do. Some others of you may feel repulsed by this psalm. You would prefer not to read it ever again. And in fact, you plan to go home, take out your black highlighter and just start marking this thing right on up because you don't ever want to read that again. Why? Because it's so disassociated in your mind with God's love. It is like the opposite of everything you believe and think about God. And let me just say again, I completely understand. And some of you may not be sure really what you think about this whole imprecatory psalm thing. It's the first time you've ever heard one, and you don't know what to do with it. Again, I completely understand that makes sense to me as well. Well, no matter where you stand in this, I want to give us a couple of things before we actually dive into any of this that... Uh, I think will give us some, some anchor points as we read hard passages in Scripture. First, let me remind you that God is unchanging. God does not change. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he is unchanging from start to finish. The prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 6 Quotes God saying, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, are not consumed. Hebrews 3.18 reminds us that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And just so we understand, Jesus is God. So Jesus, God, does not change yesterday, today, or forever. God is unchanging. So the God that was responsible here in Psalm 109 is the same God that we worship today. He hasn't changed. Second, let me remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul. I alluded to them in my prayer. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 109 is scripture. It is God's word. It just didn't sneak in there like, oh, somebody made a mistake. This is part of scripture. 
And therefore, if we believe what Paul says, it is therefore profitable so that we may be complete followers of Jesus and equipped for every good work. And that means we cannot just reject it. You can't go home and pull out your black highlighter, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Instead, we have to understand what it means and how it gets applied for us now. What can we get from this? So that's what we're going to try to do today. Now, how many of you would say you feel like on any given day you're living under a curse? It's an interesting question. Well, I'm not surprised if you say, yeah, there are days I feel like it. Look, I've gone to work before. I know you have too. It's not just because it's a Monday. And it's not just because it's a Monday, Monday through Friday, Monday, right? We all feel that. Why do we feel that? Well, because we are living under a curse. You see, we were born under a curse. And it's a curse that started way back in Genesis 3, where man chose to reject God's loving relationship. Man chose to believe the lies of Satan that God was not good. And that led us to rebel against God. The response of God in Genesis 3 is really to put the curse out. And what is that? Well, is to multiply pain of childbearing for women. It makes our marriages a contest of will and, and strength between the husband and the wife against one another. It makes our work hard and unfruitful. In Genesis 3, God cursed the ground because of our sin, and it bore the full weight of our sin. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation groans and waits for the coming of Christ so that it can be released from the weight of sin. Even the ground desires to be renewed, to be made whole once again, to be, sub to be released from the subjection that it was put under. Yet in Genesis 9, then God, following the flood, said he would never destroy the ground again, the earth again, for man's sin. And instead, man would bear the result of his own sin. And so now we bear all that weight, and it's a crushing weight. It's a crushing weight upon us. And moreover, death entered the world if we would return in Genesis 3, death enters the world, we're going to return to the ground from which God created us. But worst of all, we're cast out of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord. See, and that's the dilemma we face. Our relationship will be a struggle. Our work will be difficult. We will die, and in all of it, we will be separated from God. That is the ultimate curse from God for our rejection and rebellion against his goodness towards us. Yet God is merciful as well. 
He made a way for us to relate to him through the law. And so in Exodus 20, the law gets introduced. The book of Leviticus gets, if you really, really want to see that law really laid out, it's laid out in the book of Leviticus in a lot of detail. How many of you have read the book of Leviticus? Well, there's a few hands. Good, good. If you have read the book of Leviticus, congratulations. Well done. It is a bit tedious. I've got it. I do understand. But imagine, you know, if we find it tedious reading it, can you imagine living it? Ouch. Yeah, it's, it's got to be even harder. Yet it was meant to be God's gift to his people. He gave them as a means to have right ways of living with him, a means of having sacrifice so that their sins could be paid for, so that they could be in relationship with him. Now, for those of you who got to the end of Leviticus, congratulations again. That was awesome. And when you get to chapter 26, what you probably noticed was this thing called blessings and curses that gets put out in front of you, right? And the blessings are for those who obey God's commands. And it's all this good that God is going to do on your behalf if you'll just obey. If you'll just follow his words, follow the commands that he laid out for your good, you'll receive blessing. That's about this big in my Bible. And then there's this much that's laid out in the curses that follow. And the curses are for those who choose not to obey. And they're brutal. If the people rebel, if they will not be faithful... They will face the curses. And to be clear, the end state of those curses is destruction of the land and removal of them. Like permanently, death. It's ugly. And look, I just want to encourage, as as horrible as that may sound, go home and read that this week. Read Leviticus 26. Because if you do, all of a sudden the whole Old Testament makes sense. Because it's all there in this idea of blessing and curses. Now, remember all those curses we heard today in Psalm 109. David is not praying something strange. David is not praying something unusual. David is actually, he's right in line with the Old Testament. He's right in line with those curses that are going all the way back into Leviticus. David is saying, God, I have followed your laws. I am a righteous man as far as any man can be righteous under the law. And these people have broken your laws. They have betrayed my trust. They betrayed my friendship and they have falsely accused me. I have done nothing but good to them. I have shown them only love, but they have rejected my love and sought to do evil. And they've done it when I'm at my weakest. David then reminds God that he is his servant, both weak and needy. And because he is weak and needy, God should come and deliver him. Come to his aid because he's weak and he's needy. And that's what God does. Yet, because he's God's servant, God's representative on the earth, 
David is also saying, what they're doing to me, they're doing to you. Therefore, in the context of the Old Testament, David feels, and I think very likely is, quite justified in praying his prayer. You remember I first quoted Paul's letter to Timothy earlier, and that all scripture is beneficial for us to learn from. Well, this psalm, as I've said earlier, is no different. Like the rest of scripture, this psalm points us somewhere, and in truth, it points us to Jesus. Now, how does Psalm 9 point us to Jesus? That might be your, what you're thinking to yourself. Come on, Mike, seriously? Yes, this psalm points us to Jesus. Psalm 109 points us to Jesus in two ways. First, that Jesus was both falsely accused and could have prayed those curses, but instead chose to receive the curses onto himself in our place. And secondly, even as David called for God to be his defender against the accusers, Jesus is our defender against the ultimate accuser, the accuser of the brethren. So two ways I want to talk to you about how Jesus is the better David from Psalm 109. Psalm 109 points me to Christ as the one who both stood falsely accused and the one who took on the curses for himself. Jesus came to earth to be God's servant. He left the deity of heaven, took on flesh, and walked among us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And while on earth, while on earth, he lived out the goodness of God before all the people. He extended God's love to people, no matter their background, whether they were highborn or, or low, whether they were a prostitute or a priest, well-educated or a beggar. Jesus offered the love of God freely. Yet, those he came to extend his love, extend God's love too, rejected him. They falsely accused him. The very ones he had healed, fed, cast demons out of, and spoke the words of life to, called out for his death when he was weak and needy. Yet, lest any of us be too quick to judge all those who were accusing Jesus at that time, you and I are among those accusers. Every time we find ourselves questioning God's goodness, questioning Jesus' love, turning towards something other than Jesus to find our satisfaction, we have placed our name in with those among the accusers. Saying, you're not really God, you're not really good, you're not really loving. There's something better. 
and it's not you. And that is a false accusation to say that Jesus isn't good, to say that Jesus isn't faithful, to say that Jesus isn't loving. That's a false accusation and we're standing among the accusers because we've all done it. Every time we question his power to save or get angry that he's extended mercy to someone we really prefer he didn't, we're accusing him of not being loving, not being just, and ultimately not being good. Friends, Psalm 109 teaches me that I stand at the forefront of those who are falsely accusing Christ. You and I want to see ourselves among the weak and the needy. The servant who's been wronged. And no doubt sometimes we are, but more often I think we're probably among those who need to see ourselves as the accusers, the false accusers in this passage. So, own that a little bit. So then, could Jesus, if if that is the case, if Jesus is the one who's falsely accused, could Jesus have prayed Psalm 109? That's a little scary to think. But I think the answer is yes. Yes, Jesus absolutely could have prayed Psalm 109 and had a lot more reason to do so than David ever dreamed of. Yes. Jesus had lived a life that was completely in line with the law. He was absolutely perfect. He was completely holy and righteous. There was no sin in him. And in truth, righteousness demanded that he pray the curse. Righteousness demanded that justice be done and that the curses be levied against the accusers, all those who had betrayed Jesus, all those who had shouted for his death. Jesus would have been much more justified praying Psalm 109 or would have been just as justified in praying Psalm 109 as God was in Genesis 3. As in the garden at Calvary, mankind again chose to believe the lies of Satan, to rebel against God's goodness and steadfast love and faithfulness. They rejected Jesus. God once again walked among his people and they rejected him. As the Apostle Paul says, they were without excuse. Yet, though Jesus is more justified than David to pray that prayer, Jesus is the better David. And he doesn't pray that prayer. He did not pray the curses over those who falsely accused him, who betrayed him, who planned his death, or even those who executed him. No, Jesus didn't pray the curses. He did the exact opposite. Verse 
He switched places with them. Jesus took all the curses that they deserved and put them onto himself. So that those who were his accusers could one day stand before God and be declared righteous and just. Jesus bore the curses so that they could be free from the curses of death and separation from God. Jesus took the curses meant for the accusers so that you and I would not have to bear them. At his trial by the Sanhedrin and later by the Roman governor, Pilate, a wicked man was appointed against him. And in a place where a defender should have been in his right side, there was an accuser. Though innocent, he was tried and found guilty. And his prayers were counted as sin. Though impoverished for the sake of those who came, for the sake of those he came to save, what little he had was gambled over at the foot of the cross. Though he pursued the needy to bless, no kindness was shown. Though he pursued the brokenhearted to renew and restore, he was broken for their transgressions. Though he delighted in blessing, the curse rested fully on him like a coat soaking into his bones. Jesus, who set people free from shame and guilt and restored their dignity, was himself dishonored and put to shame, stripped naked, beaten beyond human recognition, and hung on a criminal's cross, where God poured out all of his wrath upon him. Jesus was abandoned by God, who turned his back on him. See, Jesus took the full weight of the curses, all the terrible punishments associated with those curses. He took to him, onto himself in your place so that you would never have to. You would never have to experience them. Friends, Jesus could have prayed Psalm 109, but he did not. He could have prayed the curses onto you and I, but he did not. He instead became the curse for you so that your sin could be forgiven. Even as he declared with his dying breath, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He took the curses so you could be declared just before God, as if you had never sinned. So that you could be clothed in his righteousness, as if you had fulfilled the law completely and perfectly. He took on the curse for you, so that when you place your faith in Jesus, your sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. Every sin you have ever done or will do, yes, every single one of them, things you haven't even thought about doing yet, all of those are covered 
and then cleansed away, completely removed by the blood of Christ. Every sin that would have brought the curse on you is removed. When you place your faith in Jesus and follow him, you will never be put to shame or dishonored before God because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You will never need to fear God's judgment because you have been justified by faith in Christ. You will never be abandoned by God because you are his perfectly beloved one and righteous one hidden in Christ who is one with the Father. Amen? Church, when you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior and follow him as your King, you are fully accepted into God's family and completely loved as a true son. And that is good news. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it changes everything. Nothing is the same. Now, I said there were two reasons, so let me give you the second reason from Psalm 109, the second thing that points us to Jesus. Earlier, we said that we all stand in the place of the accuser. But did you know that every one of you also has an accuser? Every one of us has someone who is accusing us. And that someone has played your friend. That someone has given you advice and tried to give you advice all your life. That someone has been with you by your side at your most intimate moments. Yep, and you've often taken his advice and you've shared those intimate moments happily. But he is a deceitful friend because his whole goal is to put you to death. That's his whole plan from the beginning. All the while, he was giving you that great advice, hanging out with you, sharing all those fun times, those intimate moments. He was keeping records. He was videotaping everything secretly. He had every audio file of everything you've ever said and that you thought nobody heard. Yeah, he's got copies of all of it. All of it. All those hurtful and shameful things you said, all the disgraceful things that you've done. Yeah, he's got records of it all. And he's waiting for his day in court. And he's eager for that day to come. His name is Satan. He's the accuser of all mankind, but he is the accuser of the brethren specifically. And one day, anyone, everyone who has ever lived will stand before the throne of God. Everyone. And they'll be held accountable under the law for the way that they have lived. Each and every one of us will be held accountable to the law. And you might say, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, Mike. What if they've never heard of the law? Paul makes it really clear. He says, 
People who judge other people, and every one of us do, will be held accountable to the way they've judged someone else. It becomes a law unto itself. So we all have a law, and we're all judged by it. And Paul's really clear, we all fall short. No one will be declared righteous, whichever law you're living under. The result of us failing to live up to the law will be that we come under the curses of exile and death, cut off from God and without hope for all of eternity. Here is the fate of everyone who has not placed their faith in Jesus. The accuser will stand. He will present all the recorded video, all the recorded audio files that he's got. Every secret of your life will be revealed. And you'll be measured against that law, whichever one you have. And then he and all his demons will stand up and cry out. Cry out and demand justice. And the defender will remain silent. For he has nothing to say. And then the gavel will fall. And they'll say guilty away with that. But what of you and I who have placed our faith in Christ as our Savior and followed him as our King? Well, we will also stand before the judgment seat and the accuser of the brethren will do the same thing again. He'll put all the videos up, play all the, play all the, all the sound bites, everything, and quite rightly accuse you of every sin and your failure to meet perfectly the law. In truth, you and I will rightly deserve just punishment. Yet, even though all the demons of hell rise up and scream out for your death, Jesus will rise and command silence. And then he will look and say, this one is mine. Her name is written here. He'll pull back his shirt right here on my heart. This one, he's mine. His name, it's written on my hands. This one, I died for her. She's clothed in my righteousness. This one. I died for him. My name is written on his forehead. This one. I died for him. He's filled with my spirit. And with that, the gavel will fall. And God will declare you not guilty. You are acquitted. Completely and forever absolved. And everything removed from your record as if it had never existed. And that is why the Apostle Paul says there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And you will hear God say, well done, my good and faithful service. Enter into the rest which I have prepared for you. Amen. So friends, the question before you today, it's simple. First, 
Will you be the one to bear the curses? Or will somebody else? And second, when the accuser of the brethren, when you're standing before the accuser, who's your defender? If your answer wasn't Jesus to both of those, There's no other way out from under the curses. And you will bear them on your own for all eternity. So let me just say, as it says in Hebrews today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, there is a deliverer, a defender, a rescuer that you can turn to in his name is Jesus. Today, right now, you can tell him that you want to live differently. You don't want to live the way you've been living. You can tell him that you want him to be your king, that you want to follow him. You can tell him you want him to be your savior, to come rescue you from out from under the curse. And he'll do that. He'll do that. And all of that sin will be gone. And he'll be your defender in heaven and your rescuer here on earth. So if you say that today, let somebody know. Um, and if you need more, some, if you want somebody to explain that in greater detail, come on up after the service. I'll be happy to do that and walk through that with you and let you know that we're all happy to have you walk that journey with us. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for Psalm 109. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and became the curse for us. Thank you that you come for those who are weak and needy and that you are the defender of those who are accused. Lord, I pray this week that you would bring these things to recall. When we hear the voice of the accuser spreading his lies once again, may we remember that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We, we remember that there is a better way to live and it's in Christ who is good, who is loving, who is faithful, who is true. And may we see the lies for what they are. And pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.